today we're going to be talking about the gospel according to Ruth. I will not read all of uh, Ruth 1 because we had that done for us today and once I think was long enough. <laughs> so if you turn to the book of Ruth, that is where we are going to be today. Book of Ruth, it's very small. It's hidden there between Judges and Samuel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious day to come before you, to worship you, to learn from you, to be molded and shaped by our worship. I pray, Father, that you open the the book of Ruth to us, encourage us, convict us, show us our own sin and our own poverty and our own emptiness and how you fill us with Jesus Christ. Give me words and give us all ears, Father, to hear. Let us be nothing that you in our lives may be everything. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, why why would I call this sermon, or this sermon series even, the gospel according to Ruth? Isn't the gospel an account of Jesus Christ found in the New Testament? Well, to further complicate it, you know, what is Ruth about? Ruth is about a particular family's trials. It's about death, mourning, widowhood, poverty, wheat harvests, a trial, a wedding, and a baby. In the particulars of this one family, what I want us to see is that God is telling a greater story. God builds the beautiful edifice of his glory one dented, discolored brick at a time. This small, seemingly insignificant family plays a huge part in God's eternal, cosmic, saving plan. And that is one key, one of the key comforts we gain by reading the book of Ruth. God does great things through the lowly and broken fragments of families. He builds a new family, a new community of love, of sacrifice that changes the culture around it. In Ruth, we see that God redeems individuals through grace, transforming them into a new community of love to extend his kingdom into the world. There are two interpretive principles we need to consider before we get started, when looking at Jesus in the book of Ruth. The first is found in Genesis 3.15, which is actually called the Proto-Evangelum. I'll read it to you here. 3.15. This is, of course, God talking to Adam, Eve, and and the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, what's going on here is God is promising to restore Adam and Eve through a son. There's going to be a a son that comes into human history that defeats Satan's sin and death and frees humanity from the fall. And this working forward is, is key to understanding all that follows, everything that comes after it. You see it right away, this enmity between two families, Cain and Abel. You see this war between the two seeds in Isaac and Ishmael, in Moses and Pharaoh, in David and Saul. The promise is that a son would come and free humanity. That son of promise is the anticipation and tension in all the stories that follow after Genesis 3.15, right? Who is this great son going to be? Everyone's always expecting him to come. Is it Abraham? Is it Joseph? Is it Joshua? It's Jesus. Jesus is the son. This forward-looking theme of the Bible is confirmed, in fact, to be Jesus. He comes and he defeats Satan's sin and death. So Ruth is about that story. 
The genealogy of Jesus confirms that Ruth and Boaz are in the lineage of Jesus. And so the book of Ruth is about God working through Ruth to bring the son of promise into the world. So right there, there's a huge connection between this book and Jesus. It, it, it's sandwiched in between Judges and Samuel, which are two sweeping histories, um, mostly about the failure of man. And right there in between the two is this little story about how God is moving the plan along. He's working to bring a savior into the world. But there is another aspect to this, um, and that is found actually in Luke twenty four twenty seven. Luke twenty four twenty seven. And let me read this. This is Jesus speaking to his apostles. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So he's, he opens all of the scriptures, and he shows his apostles how all of it, from Genesis to Malachi, are all about him. It's all about him. So Ruth isn't just in the lineage of Jesus Christ. It's deeper than that. Okay? There are things in this book that are telling that are foreshadowing the things to come in Jesus' life. For example, you have a Jew, Naomi, and a Gentile, Ruth, who are made into a new family unit by grace, and they are set on a mission of love and sacrifice, which foreshadows what the church is like. Right? Jew and Gentile are brought together on the same mission. And so here you have a little picture in this book. Another picture is Boaz, of course. He's sort of the Jesus theme through the whole thing. He's the kinsman redeemer who takes Ruth as his wife, foreshadowing Jesus' role of the kinsman redeemer of humanity, who takes wayward humanity in as his bride, the church. So there are types and shadows all over this book. These were just two of the big ones. There's little things going on all over here that whisper Jesus' name, essentially. All of these aspects are key to understanding the good news of Ruth. Ruth is about some fairly common events in the lives of everyday Christians. And how God works in these details with care and with compassion, directing his children through the uncertainty of life toward great joy and deliverance is a lesson for us. That's why it's the gospel. What happens to them is what happens to all of us. Okay, there's all these types and shadows. There's this genealogy. But really when it comes down to it, you have empty people being filled by God. And that's why it's the, I call it the gospel according to Ruth. Sometimes we stand over graves that we can't see past, just like Naomi. At times we are left bereaved and uncertain of what direction to choose. Sometimes we are left destitute and without a friend. We labor and strive and long and don't see why God is doing what God is doing. We're crushed. We're overwhelmed. We're lifted high. We're brought low. The book of Ruth is a balm to the wounds of providence. Ruth is a comfort in the dark days of mourning, the dark days of hunger and loneliness. What's happening to us? How could a good God allow all these events of our lives to decimate us, to hollow us out, to break us down? What's the point? These are all wonderful, wonderful questions. The point is that God works in the events of mourning and the events of your dinner table for his glory and your good. He works through the big and the small, the mundane and the terrible. He works through all of it to bring about two things, your good and his glory. The Christian life is full of details we can't comprehend. 
from the viewpoint of an all-knowing God. We can't look at the world and the story being told like he can. The book of Ruth is for the housewife who wonders where the fruit of all this unbelievable labor is. The book of Ruth is for the parent who wonders what's to come of their children's suffering. It's for the ostracized and the broken, for those looking permanently for a home, for those who are looking for grace, for comfort and hope in the darkness of life's mundaneness and pain. This is the gospel according to Ruth. Ruth is a book that proclaims that God is in the everyday lives, the worst circumstances, and commonest details of the commonest Christian. The gospel according to Ruth is that God draws people to himself through fiery trials and through the witness of his children to fill the empty with transforming love. Amen to that. First, we, um, to get this story started, we're going to write, the book is called Ruth, but before we get to Ruth, we have to talk about Naomi, and before we talk about Naomi, we have to talk about Elimelech, which is kind of my point. Everybody's story starts with somebody else's. You can't, right, you're never just born in a vacuum, go on through life, and that's that. Let me get back to Ruth here. We have to look at, Na- at Naomi and how God draws believers to himself through fire, uh, trials of fire, trials of fire. So I'm going to, we begin with Naomi. Naomi is a woman who is going in the wrong direction, right out of the gate. She is going in the wrong direction. And God wants to redirect her. That's his plan. That process takes a while, and it involves in increasingly difficult circumstances. God whispers to her, God talks to her, God shouts at her, and then God roars at her. And as we all know, when Aslan roars, you can't ignore it. God orchestrates the conversion of Naomi with subtlety, with poetry, with compassion that is as startling as it is comforting. The Gospel according to Ruth. Ruth 1.1, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now, some people would say, um, that this is a agrarian sentence here. This is a chronological sentence here, right? They're setting when in history it is and what's going on with the fields. But these are this is a theological statement. Right out of the gate, Ruth 1.1 is, is telling us quite a bit about not just what's going on in the world, but what's going on in people's hearts and minds, what's spiritually going on in Israel. In the days of Judges... In the days the judges ruled is, is ironic. It's a very ironic statement because Israel is extremely unruly in, in the days of judges. So nobody's really ruling Israel. Judges 21-25 tells us everything we need to know. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in, in their own eyes. Israel is wayward and refuses to submit to the Lord. The word of God is not the guide of life. It's every man for himself. Man is his own master, so God begins to whisper. There's a famine in the land. There's a famine in the land flowing with milk and honey. Not only that, in Bethlehem, which literally means breadbasket, there's a famine. In the most fertile part of a very fertile land, there's a famine, and the famine is not a coincidence. Famines are never an accident. Famine is what God promised, he promised, to do for Israel if they backslid and forgot him. 
He's very faithful. He said, if you forget me, I will get your attention by bringing a famine. In Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 18. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall you be, be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. God is extremely faithful. He says it, and he does it. They forget him. He brings a famine to get their attention. God is desperately trying to get their attention. But Elimelech, Naomi's husband, isn't having it. He looks around. He says, famine? No way. I'm out of here. He doesn't consider the word of God. He's not listening to the Levites who are teaching them about God and what God expects of them. He's moving on. He has no king, and he doesn't consider what the sins of the land might be. He doesn't consider what his sins may be. He takes his family, uproots them, and moves away. He isn't asking the right questions. His question is, where can I actually go to get some food? Not, why would God be doing this to me? Not searching the scriptures to see if maybe there's a connection between what's going on out the window and what's going on in his own heart. He didn't consider Leviticus 26, 40 through 42. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they committed against me and also in walking contrary to me so that I walk contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember the land. Now, He's not asking the right questions. He's not considering the word of God. He's not having a dialogue with God about what's going on. He sees a famine out the window, and he moves to Moab. Now, Elimelech's move away from Israel is progressive. In Ruth 1.1, he merely sojourns, which is kind of like taking a vacation. In 1.2, he remains there. In 1.4, the family has settled down and lives there for 10 years while the sons marry and put down roots. So there's this progression away from the land of God. This family is moving in the wrong direction. A move away from the land is a move away from God, because in those days, God lived in a particular place. His house was in Israel. If you move away from Israel, you're moving away from God. There's something special about the land, and if you're not in it, you're not where God is. um, Naomi, okay, I'm sorry. I moved on too fast there. In Israel, the land is where the Lord lives. Elimelech moves away from the land and away from God, and so God goes from a whisper to speaking. Elimelech dies. He moves there, away from the Lord, and he goes into the ground to stay there. He's apart from the Lord. Now, at this point, what does Naomi do? Does she consider, okay, there was a famine in the land, and now my husband has died. Maybe something is going on. She doesn't. She stays there for 10 years. She has sons the age of marrying. She doesn't consider what God says about marrying people from your own clan, from your own culture. She's not listening. She's not asking the right questions. And so what her boys do is her boys take Moabite wives. Moab is a land associated with sexual perversion and idol worship. Moab descends from the incestual relationship, awful enough, from Lot and his daughter. That's where the nation of Moab descends from, that awesome scene with Lot and his daughter. 
Moab led Israel in the desert into idol worship through sexual sin. There's this long history with Moab. Everyone knows where they came from. And when Israel was coming through the desert, that's the group that led Israel into idol worship through sexual sin. And, hey, let's move there with our two boys who are of marrying age. Seems like a legit idea. Elimelech was not asking the right questions. Naomi is here. She is not asking the right questions. This is... um, she didn't consider the fact that in Deuteronomy 23, 3 through 6, any children that her sons have with these ladies would be ritually unclean and couldn't attend worship services in the tabernacle for 400 years. The first five verses of this book, we see a family literally cutting itself off from God. It is running headlong in the wrong direction. God has whispered, God has spoken. And now he begins to shout. Both Naomi's boys die. They go into the ground. And we're left at verse 5 with Naomi standing over three graves. No husband, no children, no grandchildren. There is a famine in the land of Naomi. She's as infertile as the land of Israel. We started with Israel without a king, with a famine. We end now the first five verses with Naomi without a king and having a famine. There's a famine in the land of Naomi. For women at this time, their identity and their place in society was based on having a husband and children. Naomi is leaderless and barren just like the the land of Israel. And all this infertility, though, and all of this emptiness, she's being emptied of all the things that she uses to identify herself apart from God. She's no longer a mother. She's no longer a wife. She's no longer in the land of Israel. In all of this, God is turning up the soil of Naomi's heart. He's getting the rocks out. He's getting all the things out of there that are preventing her from seeing him, from listening to him, to drawing close to him. Now, I am not saying that this is formulaic. I'm not saying that to get your attention, God has to kill your spouse and your kids. That's not not the one-for-one correlation I'd like to make. It's the heavy hand of God is on her. Now, why this? Why her husband and her kids? We can only speculate. And let me tell you, I've read some books. There is a lot of speculation. I'm not going to do that. I do know this. God wants Naomi's heart. And he's got to get her to the place where she's asking the right questions. He's tilling up her heart so he can plant a seed. Okay? These exact circumstances aren't what happened to all of us. But the similarity is that sometimes... God has to chase us down in the road when we're going the wrong way. I don't know about you, but I've been going breezily along when a Mack truck runs over me and I realize it was the Lord. He's running Naomi down in the street because she's going the wrong way. What's instructive to us is not the what specifically, but the how. Widowhood and barrenness is not how God gets everyone's attention. There is a clue here in the actual language that's used. Chapter 1 is about turning to the Lord from the wrong path. There's this path that Elimelech is on, that Naomi is on, that Ruth is on, that her kids are on, and then there's the path that leads to the Lord. And what God wants is them to turn from the wrong path to the right path. We call this repentance in theology. Repentance is a 180. You're going this way, you stop, you go back. You're doing something, you stop doing it. That's what repentance is. Now, in Hebrew, there's a verb, shub. I hope I said that right, shub. 
Now, it's translated as return, gone back, turn back in verses 6, 7, 8, 10, 11, 12, 15, 16, and 22. There's this play on this word all the way through, and we lose it in English. But God is using this term that is usually used for repentance in Israel culture, Israelite culture to talk about them turning around, right? She turns around from the graves. They turn back towards Bethlehem. This language is all repentance language. This is what God is trying to do, is get these people off the wrong path onto the right path. Now, it's difficult to watch people go down the wrong direction. I think we all know people where we're, you know, from the cheap seats, we're watching it, and it's hard to watch because you can all tell they're going down the wrong direction. Um, I don't know about you, but I've also been in this position where I'm going, again, the wrong direction, and I find out that I'm going the wrong direction, and it seems so obvious afterwards that I was going the wrong way, and it took a lot to get my attention. It sometimes takes a lot to get people's attention, to tell them what's very simple. You're going the wrong way. C.S. Lewis wrote, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. He shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Okay? God takes away from Naomi her people, her husband, and her children. Naomi is barren in an earthly sense, but her heart is prepared for planting. To get her attention, God has, to, has had to bring very difficult circumstances. She followed her husband down the wrong path, and even after he died, she remained on it. What we get to see for the sake of our difficult circumstances is that God is working through hers, though Naomi doesn't understand how or why, to remove her self-reliance. Okay? This is the lesson. We see what's happening to her, and it's so obvious it's supposed to cause us to ask the right questions. How am I like Naomi? How am I like Elimelech? How am I like this family leading my family in the absolutely wrong direction? The point here is to, to get you to ask the right questions. To go there, God has had some tilling to do. To get this field ready for his seed, he has had to till up the soil of her heart. Naomi is barren and grieving. She's standing over the graves of her husband and sons, and what can we say to her? What can we say to her? She can't see past the graves and the grieving. We walk up to her and say, hey, I've read chapter 4. It's great. It's going to be great. You're going to love this. We have to be very careful with things like this. We can't be trite about it. Um, I have done it myself. (laughs) What what do you mean you're torn up about that? Haven't you read Job? (laughs) Right? And that's not comforting to people. It's not comforting people. What we need to do is enter into a healthy, peaceful, wise discussion about these things. The point of the difficult circumstances is to ask the right questions. And you can handle that wisely and help people, help yourself. We suffer like this. We suffer like how Naomi is suffering here. And oftentimes it's impossible to see past the graves and the grieving. God has given us this beautiful little book to know that there is something glorious beyond the graves and the grieving. This place Naomi is at is familiar to us. Okay? She's empty now and full of questions. He's brought her to the place where he's emptied her of everything she had and filled her mouth with questions. Now God is going to get somewhere with her. Now she's ready. Now she's ready. Our physical trials and emotional turmoil, the circumstances of our family, our finances, and our future are a source, aren't they, of infuriating 
painful, hollowing uncertainty and confusion? Do you feel churned up inside like God has gotten out a giant rototiller and just run you down with it? Do you feel like that? Does God need to? Are you ready to ask the right questions? Are you pretty certain you have it all figured out? Are you in charge of your own life and know exactly where you're going? Or are you utterly empty and full of questions? Are you ready like Naomi for the answer? This is what we have to ask ourselves. Are we asking the right questions? And if we are, are we ready for the answer? Because God roars. He roars. We read in Ruth 1.6, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Naomi is standing over those graves with the land of Moab beyond, and a great roar echoes through the land. And she can't do anything but turn and see what it is. News reaches her that the empty land is now full. The Lord has returned to the land. She's full of questions and ready for the answer. Why? What happened? Why is the Lord suddenly back? What's going on in Bethlehem? She's finally asking the right questions. Naomi makes a connection that she had previously ignored. Okay? She sees it now because God has prepared her to see it. The land was empty and now it's full. She's empty and so she, all she has to turn to is the land where the Lord is. She gets it now. She's made the connection. She's learning the lesson of 1 Peter 5.10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The answer to her questions is the Lord, and he's, he's allowed her graciously to see it. The land was empty, and he's filled it. I am empty, and perhaps if I go there, he will fill me too. She's ready to knock on the door. She's ready to seek. God whispered, he spoke, he shouted, and he roared. It took a lot to get her attention because it sometimes takes a lot to get our attention. But she's listening now. She's ready for the answer. The seed is planted. It's taking root. She turns away from the path of death to the path of life, and someone is watching. And we see that God draws people to himself through the witness of his children. Naomi was heading in the wrong direction, and how she responds to God's attempts to get her attention through her trials has a huge effect on the people who are watching her. Naomi has experienced racking pain. What is she going to do? She rises up from the prostration before the graves with conviction. Where does this sudden steadiness come from? Imagine watching her. She falls down on her face in front of these graves, and she rises up, and suddenly she knows where she's going, and she knows how she's getting there. Naomi has a plan. Naomi knows where she's going. Her daughters follow her. It takes her some time, but Naomi finally speaks in Ruth 1, 8 through 9, and the life has been extremely bitter. Her words are full of grace and blessing. Let's read it. Verses 8 and 9. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. Naomi, at this point, isn't just thinking of herself. She's gone a little way, and she's thought of something. 
She's thinking of these young women. Naomi doesn't just want companions or labor, otherwise she'd take them with her. She's thinking of, of them and what's best for them. It's taken a lot to get Naomi to, to hear the Lord. And Naomi is on a tr- return trip to grace, and that grace is already having an effect on her because of this consideration of others. I think there's a lot. It's kind of screaming out at us. At first, both daughters refuse to leave her. But Naomi makes a very realistic, biblically-based, and wise appeal to them. She doesn't want them to follow her without counting the cost. 10 through 14. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Now, what's going on here is, in the law, when your husband died, his brother had to marry you so that you could produce an heir that could inherit the property in the nation, in the nation of Israel. Okay, she wasn't concerned about her sons following the law of God marrying Israelites in the first place, but now suddenly she's very concerned with the law, customs, and laws, the law and the customs of God for, her, for the people of Israel. She suddenly, wait a minute, if they go with me, okay, now that I'm considering the law and living differently, we have to follow the law, and that's going to take forever. Because at this point, if she has a baby, what's it going to take, 18 years? And that would be awkward, right? Her 45-year-old uh, daughter-in-law who's widowed is going to marry her 18-year-old son. I mean, I, this is getting awkward, right? She, she wants to avoid all of that. Why go with her when she has no husband to a land where they're going to be poor? Why do that to them? She gives them this out. She says, go back to your parents' house. Go back to your society, your culture, where you know how things work, where you know your own people, where you're not going to be a beggar. She's thinking of them. She's thinking of them, and she's considering the word of God, which she hadn't done up to this point. Unlike her husbands and her sons, she's considering the marriage customs and laws of God. If you're going to remain with Naomi at this point, you will heed the laws of God. This is a real repentance, I think. This is a real turning that she's experienced. If you follow Naomi on this new path, you will remain unmarried. In Israel, in God's house, things are done God's way. The marriage customs and laws of God are Naomi's new standard. She now has a king. She left without one. She's coming back with one. Naomi is thinking about these young women and warns them of what it costs to follow her. Orpah, the one daughter-in-law, considers the cost and thinks, yeah, I'm going back. And she returns to the land. But what about Ruth? What about Ruth? I imagine Ruth standing there in front of Naomi, looking into her eyes and wondering, who is this and what did you do with Naomi? I think the text shows she's so different. She's considering things she didn't consider before. She's considering others and the word of God. She has conviction and purpose, and she's going back to this land, even though it's going to be extremely difficult. What's with this selfless warning? What's with this steadiness, this strength and conviction? After everything that's gone on in your life, who are you, is what Ruth is asking. Where is it coming from? Hmm? She starts asking the right questions. This isn't like you. I've known you forever. What has made you like this? Ruth has the question. She's ready for the answer. Naomi should be empty, but she seems full. Ruth is full of questions and ready for the answer. The witness and wisdom of Naomi has had an effect on Ruth. She has nothing material to gain from going with with Naomi on this path, but Ruth makes a connection between this change in Naomi and her Lord. Just like Naomi made the connection between the land and the fullness in the Lord, Ruth's heart has changed. And we see in Ruth's 
profession of faith is one of the most remarkable in all of Scripture. Ruth 1, 16 through 18. And she said, see, or 16. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Ruth chooses Naomi's path, the path of the Lord. It's not a path of material gain. It's not a path of ease, it's n- nor social standing or, or honor. But she is all in with Naomi. She's all in with Naomi's God because she wants to be like Naomi. Okay. The character of Naomi, the witness of Naomi, has had an effect. Ruth sees it's strange. Ruth sees something is happening. Something is stirring. Something is moving. Naomi is different, and she wants to be different just like Naomi is different. This echoes Jesus' teaching on the cost of discipleship, right? You have to leave mother and brother, and he lists all these things. And this is what Ruth is doing. She can turn back and have a comfortable life in Moab. Or she can follow Naomi and become like Naomi through hardship, through turmoil, through toil. It's going to be hard. She's taking up her cross, and she's following her, though because she's seen the connection between the Lord and Naomi's new character. Ruth chooses the cross. This is what's fascinating about this. She looks at this life that's coming, and she says, I would rather be with the Lord than go back to Moab. They've both turned now onto the right path. Naomi was taken through devastating circumstances, trials of fire, to purification. Ruth witnesses Naomi's grace under trial, and and that grace affects her convictions. She is a young woman who wants to grow up to be like Naomi, and so she chooses Naomi's path. Naomi saw the Lord fill the empty land. Ruth sees that the Lord fills empty Naomi, and Ruth wants to be filled by the Lord as well. Both paths of repentance that we've seen here, of turning from one path to the other, are what we all experience. We all experience these things. Both women were empty and full of questions, and the answer to both was the triune God. What has changed your heart? Why are you sitting here? Is it because life was so difficult and so heavy and so hard, and you saw this difference in these people over here, and you went, I want that? Or is it because somebody came into your life, into the darkness with light? Right? Somebody came being Jesus to you when you did not know him. And that had an effect on you. Or everything was taken away from you and you were empty and you were ready for the answer to the question. We see two very different paths of repentance here. And I think either all of us have experienced one on a major scale or both. I've experienced both. We need to see grace under fire. The world needs to see grace under fire. The world needs to see that there's something different about us. If we're not any different than the world, what is it that we're offering them? If Jesus doesn't actually change us, if he doesn't actually give us something we didn't have without him, what are we saying about him? What are we telling the world? God works in the life of Naomi through Ruth and Ruth through Naomi, and he creates this bond between the two of them that's deeper than mother-in-law, daughter-in-law. Ruth's words are this, what's yours is mine. 
The second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor like yourself. Okay? Her lodging is Ruth's lodging. Naomi's death is her death. She, they're one now. And the bonds here isn't because they were going along and just had a good time and they're like, yeah, I'm with you. That seems legit. You seem like a nice person. Okay, through the witness of one another, they, there's this love that's come into, this, into their community, into their relationship that's otherworldly. Okay, and are we demonstrating that? Are we loving one another like this? Do I honestly want to look at you and say, where you go, I go? What happens to you happens to me. Do we love one another that way? Are we being different? How you handle difficult circumstances, how you deal with pain, these are all statements about what you believe about God. Ruth's words are very telling. Ruth loves Naomi like she loves herself. Your love for one another is evangelism. It is evangelism. In a world void of faith, faithfulness, conviction, grace, and selflessness, the fruit of the Spirit in us is a witness that stirs up the world. Steve Shogren, I believe is his name, wrote this in Irresistible Evangelism. The real gospel seeds are personal, loving touches that ignite a longing inside a person's heart. They are acts of unselfish kindness and generosity that contain a tiny kernel of Christ's love for the person who receives them. We, we get this seed in our hearts, and it sprouts up, and it produces fruit, and that fruit is planted in the hearts of others by our love for them, by our love for one another. We're saying something about who we think God is by the way we treat one another and how we treat people in the world. Your trials are meant to get your attention, and how you handle those situations is a witness to one another, to your children, and to the world. And we see this great outpouring of love stirs up the community. What's going on between them isn't just about Ruth and Naomi, though it is. It's also about the people of Israel. It's about the larger community. We see this progression in which outward displays of faith affect others. Love goes into Naomi and out to Ruth. Love goes into Ruth and out to Naomi. And now, this love that's poured into them and binds them stirs up the community of God. Ruth 1, 19 through 20. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Now, we go on to see in chapter 2 that people have heard of them. These two have come back to town, and people have heard of them. It's stirring things up. What's going on in their lives is causing people in Israel to ask questions. Now, the question is, are they ready for the answer? What happened to them? We saw Naomi leave here. She was with her husband, going their own way, and she's back now, totally empty, with this Moabite woman. What is going on? What is going on? Now, we have to say something about Naomi's response here because it's kind of interesting given some of the things I've already said. She's been through a lot, though. Naomi has been through a lot. She says, I'm not pleasant. That's what the word Naomi means. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter because God has, been, has dealt bitterly with me. Now, I don't think there's as much pessimism here as, as it first seems. I think she's being very honest about where she's at. She's clearly on the right path, but she still hasn't seen the good in it. 
She just knows it's the right thing to do. I think her process of sanctification is still going on, obviously. It's not like she just comes back, yay, but she's come back. Okay? Not everybody comes back with, with a smile yet. Okay? It's a process for everybody. She's going to get to the point where <laughs> she's going to be laughing like a crazy woman here in chapter 4, but she's not there yet. There's still work to do. I mean, she's not empty either, like she says, because she has Ruth with her who's all in, completely for her. We can see at this point that she's doing the right thing, but she still doesn't see the point of doing the right thing. But she is honest about her story. She has no shame. She's humbled. She's not pretending. The point of this section isn't necessarily how Naomi feels about her obedience, and it, but about its effect on everyone else who's watching. We see that God's plans are bigger than just Naomi and Ruth. Their return is the beginning of something that stirs up the people of God. I would suggest that Naomi went away. She was probably a very arrogant woman, her and her husband. They're going their own way away from God. She comes back, and she's very honest about where she's at, though. I think that alone is a huge change, and it affects how everybody sees her. She left, and she now comes back empty. I think what she is really saying, because this is a very poetic book, is that she went away full of herself under Elimelech's headship, They were both full of themselves, and she has now come back because of God empty. I think that's really what she's saying. People have put too much weight on on her words here to, to disprove some of the other evidence about where she's at. But I think really what she's saying is, I went away full of myself, and I'm empty now. And I'm ready for whatever it is God's going to do. She's come back empty of conceit and self reliance. Israel at this time, like I said, is oscillating. They're up, they're down, they're faithful, they're unfaithful, mostly on this trajectory of unfaithfulness. All through the book of Judges, they're just descending into a very deep, dark pit at the end of Judges, which I can't say because there's kids here, what happens, but it's ugly. Things get ugly in Israel. And when there is a revival, it's short-lived. It goes through these, these periods up and down. But God has returned to the land right at harvest time. I think the poetry here tells us a lot about what's going on. And in this story, where God has returned to the land and it's harvest time, step Naomi and Ruth. And God uses their conversion stories, God uses all of our conversion stories, to stir up people's faith. He gets people asking questions. Naomi and Ruth are here. It's harvest time. People are asking questions, and and are they ready for the answer? Okay, I don't know about you, but I meet people who were Christians when I was a teenager, when I wasn't. And, and it's almost, I always think of Ruth here. Uh, who, who, look who's back. What happened to you? I've been told I don't even look the same. And not because I've gained a bunch of weight, but they actually tell me in my eyes I look different, right? And, and on more than one occasion in my life, I've seen that bear fruit. People are startled sort of out of this torpor. Wait, he can be saved? <laughs> if you guys would have known me, that's a funny question. God saved him? <laughs> It's true. Over an extended period of time in the life of any community of believers, when no one sees anyone come to the faith, spiritual torpor descends. One conversion can turn things on its head. Demonstrations of the true gospel, which perhaps haven't been seen in a while, can upset the cart, flip things around. Ruth's faithfulness to Naomi and Naomi's humility ripple through the community and set people asking questions. 
When you see repentance, does it cause you to want to repent? When you see true humility, do you mock it? Do you shy away from it? When you see a new Christian zeal, and we all know what new Christians are like, full of the worst possible kind of ideas usually, stuff that we know we've tried and doesn't work. And we tend to kind of, you know, we're going to be real with you, buddy. We don't really do stuff like that. right? We tend to damper people. But fresh zeal, it's like sending fresh troops into the fight. I don't know how many, I study history, how many battles have been turned simply because they threw a new unit in. Things were going well, but they're getting tired. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to send a new platoon in. Suddenly everybody's fighting harder. This is what God does. He brings people into communities that are sort of safe, you know, just sort of sitting back, enjoying life. He sends in new converts to sort of stir things up. It's really helpful, actually. Does the outworking of God's love excite you? Or does it make you feel like, well, this guy is kind of a little crazy. He's all up in my face. He wants to hang out every day. I mean, I've been through this where there's new Christians. All they want to do is get together and read the Bible. It's like, I don't know, Blue Bloods is on Friday. I can't meet him. I'm busy. Okay, are we here to maintain a comfortable community? Is that why we're here in middle class America? To dig in? Have we locked Aslan in a cage? Is he somewhere in the next room where we can't hear him roar, stuff some socks in his mouth. Is that, is that how we treat God? Keep him safe, locked up. Keep the Bible on the bookshelf. Are we striving to be stirred up? Are we seeking conversions? Are we asking the right questions about our own sin, the direction that we are going, and who our king really is? Are we asking ourselves those questions? God stirs up his community. He messes with the status quo through the fresh zeal of new believers and by refining fellow believers through fiery trials. Have you thought about this much? Where are you at? What direction are you going? Who is your king in every area of life? Is there something you're holding back? Are you having a dialogue with God about where you're at? God doesn't want us to go our own way. After a period of time, if you read enough of the Bible, you think you know what the right way is. But this is why he gives us communities. This is why he gives us prayer. This is why he shakes us up from time to time. He doesn't want us to go down the wrong path, not as individuals, not as families, and not as community. He's a doctor who sometimes has to amputate the arm to save the patient. But when we arise from that near-death experience, a different person like Naomi, how do we handle it? how you handle it affects those around you, okay? Sometimes in communities like this, we've seen it. Something gets stirred up. Some heavy hand comes on one of us, and it causes us all to stop and think for a moment and ask questions we didn't usually ask. What we need to get good at is asking those questions anyway. You can avoid the heavy hand if you're asking the right questions on a regular basis. Now, what I don't want to do is cause you guys to have morbid introspection. Please, no, don't do that. What I want is a healthy dialogue. Open the word of God and look at it, even if it's one verse, and pray, what is this verse telling me? What am, where am I at? God, reveal it to me. Don't use your own wisdom. Go to others in the community. Say, you know, have you noticed anything lately where, do I seem bitter? Do I seem anything? Do I seem zealous? Do I seem on fire for the Lord? That's why you're all here, for me, for one another. It's a dialogue. 
If we're asking the right questions and ready to listen to the answers of one another, we can avoid a lot of the things that, that God has to use to shout at us, quite frankly. He wants us asking the right questions. Are you obedient? Is Jesus your king in every area of life? Are you listening to God? Are you being a good witness? Are you fellowshipping with believers or are you avoiding them because you know there's questions that you're not going to like the answer to? God's word, the Bible, teaches you how to discern his hand. I always say this to my kids. There's what he says and what he does. And what he says teaches us what he's doing. And the more you spend in one, the more you understand the other. Prayer is a conversation. Community is a place where we hold one another accountable, where we comfort, rebuke, remind, and call each other out. The gospel is that God so loved the world he gave, filling the empty like Naomi, like Ruth, like Israel, like you and me. And if we're full of this world, there's nowhere for him to pour it. He so loved the world he gave, but what it requires is emptiness. Emptiness of yourself, emptiness of your own leading, your own wisdom, your own reason, your own plan. And the more we empty ourselves of the things of this world to be filled with the Lord, the less he's got to pick us up and shake us to empty us himself. God loves us. He doesn't want us going down the wrong path. And he isn't just going to come out and zap you. He's like a dad who disciplines you over a period of time to get your attention. God so loved the world he gave to fill the empty. Be empty. Are you asking the right questions? Are you empty? Are you ready? Are you full of the wrong worldly things? You should ask more questions, but be prepared for the answer. We all need to do more repenting, more praying, more reading, and more encouraging of one another. The gospel is God doesn't leave us where we are. He never leaves us where we are. Through death comes life. Die to yourself so you can live. Die to yourself so you can live. How? That's an excellent question. It's the right question. And the answer also comes from Naomi's hometown, Bethlehem. And his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. How do you die to yourself to live for others, to live for God? Jesus. And amen. Father, we thank you for this this day. I pray out of all of this text, all of these words, all of these metaphors, that your grace would come into our hearts, that you would illuminate our minds, that you would convict us and ask us and and cause us to ask the right questions of ourselves and of one another. Father, don't let us go down the wrong path, but lead us through your loving hand onto the right path, the path of life that leads to Christ. I pray that this week that these saints go into the world and worship you every day and converse with you every day and that they are ready for the answers you have to give them. Strengthen them and be with them. In Jesus' name, amen.